This episode is brought to you by the generous donations by the members of the Best of the Left podcast. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Show, and Countdown. CIA reports on uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, EIT, have come out. Now, these are the ones uh, that uh, Dick Cheney said are going to prove how much torture worked. We got critical information that we couldn't have gone, gotten without torture, and these documents and these memos will clearly show. Except, of course, can you guess? They don't. Okay. Now, these are internal reports, and they are... They're not absolutely clear. Let me make that uh, part of it clear. When you read the reports, it says, we got some of our top information from some of the guys that we tortured. Okay, so now a lot of the media was, stops right there and goes, okay, check, Dick Cheney was right. Everybody report Dick Cheney was right. No, but if you read on, it says, but, two important buts. One, uh, we don't know if they gave that information, in fact, three important buts. One, we don't know if they gave that information before the interrogation began, the harsh interrogation, or after in a lot of cases. And so, for example, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, he came out guns blazing instantly and admitted everything. Now, again, it's a little unclear as to all of his admissions and what came before the torture and what came afterwards. But some of the most important ones, he said right up, the fr up front before they did anything to him. You know why? He wanted to brag. He's like, oh, yeah, we were going to hit the tallest tower in uh, L.A., and we were going to hit, you know, Europe, and I had all these great plans, etc. Because he wanted to show that he was the, the top guy, that he was the big guy. And then in some of the cases, he gave up the information right away because he thought, he assumed we already had it because we had detained some other people that were involved in the plot. And it turns out he was wrong. We didn't have that information. And then how much of it he gave up after they started waterboarding him and other techniques is unclear, according to the reports. Now, the second important but, they, the report clearly says none of these threats, as far as we know, were imminent. Okay, so let me give you the exact quote, uh, among others. Quote, it did not uncover any evidence that these plots were imminent. And that seems pretty clear, right? So why is that so important? Because Khalid Sheikh Mohammed can tell you all day long the things that he would have loved to have done, right? I would have loved to have hit L.A. Oh, boy, and then London, and then Paris, and then what other cities would I have liked to hit? Well, I know you would have liked to hit a lot of them, but which ones were you planning? Because if you use this information to break up plots, you say, all right, look, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed told us there's a bomb under the Eiffel Tower we went and got. Okay, right. Okay, that's one thing. If he says, ah, oh, I would have eventually liked to hit Paris, well, that ain't nothing, <laughs> okay? So if you look at the, the, the two different memos released here and the overall reports, uh, the ones that Dick Cheney would, says would definitely justify torture, you don't get that at all. You get, one, we don't know when they gave it up. Two, we don't know, here's the third but of this, we don't know if they would have given it up anyway, right? So because once you start torturing the guy, one, he starts lying to you. That's not even in, involved here, right? But it's already been shown that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, during his torture, gave out a lot of false information. Of course, he wants you to stop waterboarding him. He might tell you things that are true. Look, I don't want anybody to misinterpret me. I don't, I'm not saying that 
under no circumstances would anyone tortured ever give up information that is true. Of course they might. And they might also give out false information. They might give you more information if you didn't torture them because using the conventional interrogation techniques we've used before that has had tremendous success, whether it was with the Nazis or in almost every other campaign that we've done. So, and then third of all, it turns out with the information we got, we didn't stop any imminent threats. So when Cheney says we stopped attacks that were about to happen, that is unequivocally not true. And ironically, the document that shows it is the one that said he, that he said was going to show how right he was. Of course, it shows the exact opposite, that no imminent threats were stopped, and it is entirely unclear what we got out of this torture. What we do know is the torture was illegal and immoral and not the way that we should do things in America, and it degrades our country for what appears to be almost no effect at all, or at best, certainly, a disputed, unclear effect. So shocking that Dick Cheney lied about that again. And shocking that the media is not reporting it as, uh, I have two issues with the way they're reporting it. One, I saw on CNN, MSNBC even, briefly, uh, and in some of the other papers saying, well, as Dick Cheney claimed, I'm like, no, come on, please, do some reporting. And then sometimes what they'll say is, well, Dick Cheney claims that it shows he's right, and the Democrats claim that it shows they're right. But you know, why are you asking either side? Why don't you read the document and then tell me what it says? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, God, the media is so impotent in, in, in so many ways. They're so afraid to tell you what the document actually says. They say, well, uh, the Republicans say that it shows torture works, and the Democrats say it shows torture doesn't work. Well, what the frick? What the frick? I just <laughs> it doesn't actually say. You're supposed to be reporters. So it drives me nuts when they do that. why it is that you can't bring your big toothpaste on board the airplane anymore, why it is that the airport concessions beyond the security gates are able to make a killing on bottled water since you can't bring in water from anywhere else through the security lines anymore. It is because of these guys, uh, three British men convicted yesterday in a plot to blow up planes flying between the UK and here. These men were first arrested back in 2006. British authorities announced they have broken up a major terror plot to blow up airliners flying from Great Britain to the United States. Tonight, a total of 24 arrests have been made. Police officials here are saying that they believe they have picked up most of the masterminds behind this attack. This supposed attack plot involved using soft drink bottles to bring onto airplanes homemade hydrogen peroxide-based bombs. Back in 2006, British police were all over this plot. They had more than 200 people under 24-hour, seven days a week surveillance. According to the Assistant Commissioner for Special Operations at the Metropolitan Police in London, who wrote about the investigation in the Times of London today, quote, key suspects in the airline plot were under intensive surveillance. 
surveillance. We logged every item they bought. We sifted every piece of rubbish they threw away at their homes or in litter bins. We filmed and listened to them. We broke into their homes and cars to plant bugs and searched their luggage when they passed through airports. We watched as they experimented with turning soft drinks containers into bottle bombs. We listened as they recorded martyrdom videos. But what the British police hadn't yet done was arrest these guys. They wanted to suss out as much of this terrorist network as they could, and they wanted to ensure they had enough evidence to get convictions of as many of these key players as possible on the most serious charges they could get them convicted on. But according to British intelligence officials, who apparently feel free to talk about this case now, now that the men have been convicted, the Brits had their hand forced on these arrests. When then-Vice President Dick Cheney allegedly ordered the early arrest of the bombing suspect's point man in Pakistan, the U.S. was apparently prepared to kidnap this man in Pakistan and fly him out of the country to a secret prison for interrogation if the Pakistanis didn't arrest him themselves. The Pakistanis did arrest him themselves. The Brits were not notified of the Pakistani arrest. That arrest would have tipped off the suspects in Britain that their plot had been found out. And so, because of that arrest, because of the alleged U.S. actions to cause that arrest, before the British investigation was complete, before British law enforcement had exploited that known terrorist cell to its best counterterrorism purposes, they were forced to act early, prematurely, because of the Bush administration. This was three years ago, and British law enforcement are clearly still really PO'd about it. Stay tuned for more on this. It's not the last you will hear of it. major news of today is uh, Barack Obama's White House has uh, said that they are putting together a new team for interrogations, that the, that team will be led uh, by someone at the FBI and no longer controlled by the CIA and private contractors. Now, uh, the CIA will be involved in the process. The intelligence organizations, of course, will be involved in the process, but it will be led by the FBI, and ultimately the White House will be responsible for it. Now, that's the first part of the major news. The second part of the major news is that uh, it looks like Eric Holder is going to appoint a prosecutor uh, to find out what abuses went on and what part of those abuses were illegal. Now, of course, the Republicans are up in arms over this. How can you say this, that you're going to prosecute people for breaking the law on investigations? They were trying to help our country. They're American heroes. In fact, uh, already Ari Fleischer, the former spokesperson uh, for George W. Bush, has come out and said it is disgusting that they would actually try to prosecute people who broke the law during interrogations. Now, Eric Holder seems to be fairly independent here. He's not playing. And now there are some on the left saying, no, nah, you know what, it's not quite as good as it needs to be. And I'll tell you why in one second. But he is saying, look, we're going to start this investigation. 
And the reason we're going to is some people went outside of what was told, that what they were told were legal. Now you have to understand that that's an indisputable point. Okay, what, why do I say that it's indisputable? Now you can dispute whether they should have been given uh, the legal advice that they were given on how to interrogate detainees and to go through all the enhanced interrogations and what the law would normally call torture, the waterboarding, the stress positions, etc., etc., go on and on, right? But there are some folks that we know for a fact, and now a CIA report has come out about it, an internal Inspector General's report from 2004. That's the third part of the story today. We know that's come out. So we know some went beyond what the Justice Department and even Dick Cheney authorized. So now, we, and so what's in that report? What's in that report is people uh, pulling guns on agents. I'm sorry, on detainees. Agents pulling guns on detainees, sometimes power drills, saying we're going to execute. Mock executions are only a million percent illegal, right? Uh, in another case, they tell Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, we're going to kill your children. Now, look, some might say, hey, I hate Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He killed our children. Right, but look, there's a way we do things in America, and we don't threaten to kill people's family members, okay? That's what makes us America, and not a, you know, a third world country that we think we are, are, you know, are better than in terms of human rights, and that we preach to all the term, all the time. Now, another thing that happened, according to the CIA reports, is we've got the, you know, the threatening their lives, we've got threatening their uh, family members, and then a third report says uh, that we were going to go ahead and um, rape the mother of one of the detainees in front of him. Now, okay, I've got to ask you, you, does anybody think that's legal? Does anybody think, oh, like, oh that's rock and roll? Hey, you know what? Uh, let's ignore it. Okay, you can't make the argument that it's legal because everybody understands all those things are clearly illegal, including the mock executions, right? And so then your other argument, if you're a Republican or a conservative and you're outraged by this, would be that, yeah, we know it's illegal, but just don't worry about it. Don't prosecute it at all. Now, of course, these are the same people who made the argument that what can we do? We have to prosecute Bill Clinton on perjury. It's the law. You can't, you know, say, oh, let's just ignore a part of the law. In this case, I guess they're making the argument that we should ignore it. Well, Eric Holder's not going to ignore it, so that's very positive news. Now, here comes the downside and why some liberals say it doesn't go nearly enough. Because they say we will not go after the people who wrote the Justice Department memos that justified a great majority of the detainee abuse and torture. So now, Leon Panetta reacts very angrily to this. He's the CIA director. ABC News says that he had a, a shouting tirade where he let go of a lot of invective and colorful language, what they called salty language. Apparently a lot of cursing in there. Okay. Now why is he doing that? Because he is saying, hey listen, now you're going to tell me that you're going to go after uh, some of the CIA agents who did this, but you're not going to go after the people who told them, hey, take the gloves off. Now, Leon Panetta isn't suggesting that you should go after those top dogs, right? But he's saying, if you're not going to, then you shouldn't go after the lower level people. And if you ask me, look, if you break the law, we have to go after you, especially on something this important, right? Uh, and if that investigation later leads you, because of the defense of those people, into going after bigger and bigger targets, then so be it. Now, if it doesn't, it doesn't. Okay, we'll follow where the facts go, and we'll follow where the law goes. But 
uh, you know, if I'm an uh, attorney uh, for one of the CIA agents, and I would probably make the argument, hey, you know what? They told me to take the frickin' gloves off. Now, you're going to prosecute me for taking the gloves off when the guy above me told me that. Well, that's a fair argument. So let's ask, what did the guy above you really say? And if it leads higher and higher, then it's got to, right? I mean, you can't just punish a quote-unquote few bad apples if they were given orders. But maybe they weren't. Maybe they went outside of their orders, and you should punish them for going outside of even John Yu and Dick Cheney's orders. So that investigation will be very interesting, and of course, it will be instantly politicized, not by the Democrats, but by the Republicans, who will say, oh, no, if you're trying to uh, prosecute people for torture, it's obviously politics. So w that turns the facts absolutely on its head. Now, you got a guy who does a mock execution, clearly illegal. Normally, what you would do is prosecute. But you're saying don't prosecute because it'll be political. No, if you don't prosecute, that means you're making a political decision outside of what the law would normally dictate. And my guess is that the Republicans will come out so strong that the media will probably play along. They already are. You know, you already have the Chuck Todd saying, oh, this is going to be political, so you better not prosecute anybody. In fact, we have a great evidence of that. Uh, in a little back and forth that Jeremy Scahill uh, and Chuck Todd went uh, on uh, Real Town with Bill Maher. Scahill challenged the media, including Chuck Todd, that happened to be on that panel that day. And, uh, and it was interesting to see Chuck Todd's, of course, defensive reaction. So let's watch that clip real quick here. Stop it. And journalists have done nothing to hold the White House accountable now, Chuck or under Bush. This has not been an issue, and yet it constitutes more than half of the fighting force in Afghanistan. Or Chuck. Right now, no, it's doesn't... fine. I know. I represent everybody. Yeah, Chuck. Oh, no, no. Yeah, Chuck. <laughs> and the comedians have had no part. None. Comedians have played no role in any of it. No, but no, Chuck, Chuck you, called, you called it political catnip to talk about the CIA and Cheney's role in this because it, it, it distracts from the important issues. This is a central issue, and you called it cable catnip. Because how does it, what happens, and what is it going to get turned into? A political food fight where you can't get anything done, Congress would not be able to get any prosecution done, and worse yet, that, the prosecution that you would want to have, the prosecution that would get done, but the prosecution that you would like to see would end up, and if it gets, and you don't get it, and then you find out that it provides some immunity farther along, and you find out you can't try these folks? But how can Secretary Clinton go to Kenya and say, well, we need to have accountability for past crimes there. We can't hold our own torturers accountable. And Obama says, let's look forward, not backward. You prevent future torture by prosecuting past acts of torture. Okay, but let me... Let me... <laughs> It's not from my water. I'm not saying it's not, it's not funny. It's easy to say this. Right. No, Ask no. Ask her how hard it is politically. All right. I mean, the upside-down world of the media is amazing, okay? If, you do, if the attorney general does his job and he prosecutes people for breaking the law, then apparently he's made it political, and so the Republicans are right to attack them politically. That doesn't make any sense at all. In, instead of actually elucidating what the real matter is and clarifying for the American people what the law is and what it isn't and what should normally be done and not done, they take the side of the Republicans and say, oh, you better not do it! You better not do it, because then it will be political, and we will take the side of the Republicans in blaming you for starting this political catnip or fight or whatever. And, by the way, it will be so hard. So hard. I don't understand that argument. It will be hard and? What does that mean? So that you shouldn't do it because it will be hard? 
So, oh, we should allow some crimes to go unpunished because, boy, it'd be really difficult to punish them. It makes no sense. Now, after this little uh, fight on air, uh, apparently Chuck Todd, according to Scahill, Chuck Todd comes up after the show to him and says, hey, that was a cheap shot. And Scahill says, what are you talking about? And Chuck Dodd says, you know it. You know what I'm talking about, and you know what you did was a cheap shot, basically. Um, and now this is all Scahill relaying this, so we don't, you know, just understand that it's one side in that sense. Uh, and then he says, look, uh, apparently Scahill told him, I monitor the mainstream uh, coverage very closely, and I asked him that, that uh, what was not true in what I said, right? And Chuck Todd said, quote, According to Scahill, quote, that's not the point. You sullied my reputation on TV. Now, if Scahill's right about that interaction, that's really damning. Because what Chuck Todd is saying is, I don't care what the truth is. The important thing is, you sullied my reputation on TV. You see how this works? Okay, the important thing is Chuck Todd's reputation. The important thing is whether he's ever challenged on national TV or not. Whether he's doing his job right, come on, that's totally immaterial. Whether we should prosecute people for torture, that's, come on, who cares, who cares? But my reputation on national TV, that matters. That's serious. Of course, they take it personally. That's what it's about. So, I mean, I've said this a million times, but when you see the old media, I mean, caution. It doesn't mean they don't do good work from time to time, and I got some really interesting articles from the quote-unquote old media today uh, that I want to tell you about. But understand where they're coming from and what their priorities are. And in this case, his, Chuck Todd's priority, if Scahill is right, is to cover his own ass. Which, is anyone surprised by that? And Scahill, by the way, has been on Blackwater the whole time. Because when I was not here last week, of course, the major story broke that Blackwater uh, was hired by the CIA uh, to assassinate al-Qaeda leaders. Now, we hope they were al-Qaeda leaders, and they say, oh, no, well, that didn't get underway too much. got underway a little bit. Now, doesn't it seem like you'd be circumventing the law by uh, bringing in outside contractors to do your assassinations? Well, former CIA Director Porter Goss was like, look, you know, we're overworked here, and there's a lot of regulations and laws, so sometimes when we want to work around those, we farm things out. But didn't you just admit that what you're doing is going around the law? You know, that happened last week, and that's what Scahill was talking about. Uh, and now we know that we had assassination squads. Some of them were private mercenaries, and they went around the law. And we don't know if they killed anybody yet, but we do know that there was torture, including by private contractors, and that what the media and the Republicans are telling us is under no circumstances should we investigate any of that. Well, to say that that's a profoundly bad idea is a dramatic understatement. And today, the good news is, Eric Holder saying, we're beginning that investigation, and he said in his own letter, I know this is going to be controversial, but my job is to carry out the law.
measurable, definable progress. We want to change, we're getting it. The color-coded Homeland Security Advisory System may be overhauled, moving from five colors to three. See what I'm saying? Change you can actually see with your eyes. The nation has been at yellow for three years. International and domestic flights have been at orange for the same period. Now, a proposal by the Homeland Security Advisory Council says two of the five colors should be removed, with a standard state of affairs being a guarded yellow. I know the feeling. The green low risk of terrorist attacks might get removed altogether. Wow. That's serious. There is currently indifference to the public advisory system, and at worst, there is a disturbing lack of public confidence in the system, the council wrote to uh, DHS Secretary Napolitano. Not Napoleon, Napolitano. The group said the public should feel confident, though, in a new three-color rating system. And here's why. Because for reasons of public credibility, the scale won't be politicized, and the government should elevate the threat status only when compelled to in the interest of public safety and security. And, of course, three colors will ensure that. Well, now we know why they went to five in the first place. A warning sign I missed the good part Then I realized I started looking And the bubble burst I started looking for excuses Come on in I've got to tell you what a state I'm in I've got to tell you in my loudest tones That I started looking for a warning sign. Our guest is former Pennsylvania Governor Tom Rich, who has just written a new book called The Test of Our Times. It's about being the nation's first Secretary of Homeland Security. It is a very good read, and you are being a real sport by sticking around with us, Governor. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, one episode that you write about in the book um, is about you saying in August 2004 that the President's leadership was causing us to better target our defensive measures here and away from home. And the implication was that going to war in Iraq was a defensive measure like the Homeland Security stuff that we do here at home. You regret having said that, which, which the president asked you to say? Well, I, I, I do agree with it. I do agree with the president's engagement of Pakistan in getting, the inf in getting them and the intelligence service to get us the information that led us to make that decision. But again, referring to our earlier conversation, we had a conversation among the President's Homeland Security Group, we decided that the hard drive and the surveillance tapes on northern New Jersey, New York City, and Washington merited us going up. So I'm going to hold a press conference. That's my job. I'm going to tell America what we're going to do. We're going to surgically apply the threat. We're going to raise the threat, which means more preparedness, more security. The last minute, at the request of some folks in the White House who don't need to be named, they said, well, why don't you praise the President? I said, well, I've never praised the President before, but i got a bunch of people waiting out there. I'm going to go, and I threw the sentence into the press conference. Uh, it became the sideshow. It marginalized the process. It had people then question you talk about politics. When I used the president's name, and he deserved, I mean, he was, it was because of the toughness toward Pakistan, that the intelligence service, blah, blah, blah. But 
got the got that hard drive, I should not have mentioned it because it detracted from the real message, and that is the intelligence is real. The president's Homeland Security Council thinks we need to add security around these venues. So it marginalized my press statement, it marginalized the intelligence, and it became a sideshow, and nobody's more responsible for that than me. But when, when you said targeting our defensive measures yeah. away from home, this is August 04, so we are right. more than a year into the war in Iraq, right. the implication there was that you were talking about Iraq. The, the, well, the fact is, is that there was a war, the war, we were talking about the general war in against these terrorists and our okay. presence in Afghanistan, Iraq, the pressure we had to put on the Pakistani intelligence service to be to cooperate uh, uh, more completely and comprehensively with us resulted in us getting that intel. We acted on that intel and went up. I should have never mentioned the president's name because it again created a perception. We talked about this earlier that somehow politics were involved, but that politics was not involved in the decision. It was driven by intelligence. Well, I should that, have in that point, I understand. But when I I look at your record, I feel like, you know, you, you didn't slip in a reference to the president and a reference to Iraq once in this mention in 2004. You were a crucial, authoritative part of making what turned out to be a false case to the American people about Iraq being a threat and us needing to oh. attack them. February 2003, you said on ABC. I agree that as the president has said, the world community has said this is a rogue regime that has chemical biological weapons trying to develop nuclear weapons, has means of delivery. That's the reason this individual needs to be disarmed. The point is the, the point in fact is that the world community has known for 12 years he's got chemical biological weapons, means of delivery, and that's precisely the reason of the United States and its partners are trying to disarm Saddam Hussein. He is a threat to his region. He's a threat to our allies. He is a threat to us. You made that case on national television sure. a month before we started invading. Do you regret that? No. You think it's true? At the time, I think it's true, and subsequent uh, uh, to that, uh, the president's uh, leadership and the things we've done have kept America safe. Do you think that Saddam Hussein was a threat to us at the time that we invaded? It, it, based on not only the intelligence we had, but the intelligence we got from the, that was shared, uh, I believe, uh, it's been known by the Brits and by the French the that he had used weapons of mass destruction, uh, that he was, uh, again, several intelligence agencies thought he still had them, and I believed, uh, I believed that if he had a weapon of mass destruction, a radiological, uh, uh, crude radiological device, a nuclear device or something, for him to, uh, if he had them, did I believe that he would give them to al-Qaeda? If he had them, the answer was yes. So the president going you, to Iraq, I, I said it and I believed it at the but time. That's, you believed it at the time? Yeah. You don't still believe it, do you? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, the intelligence communities of several countries who had assessed his, uh, who claimed that he had weapons of mass destruction, uh, we haven't found them. So again, you think uh, that there's, they might still be there, and we just haven't I, found them. I doubt it. I think we've covered that country, uh, but there are other reasons to go in. Uh, that was the one that was uh, that everybody focused on, and everyone who's been critical of the president for going into Iraq said we never found them. Uh, but I think uh, the president made the decision based on the facts and the intelligence as he knew it at the time, and I think it was the right decision at the time. Do you don't think that the administration? Vice President Cheney, your longtime friend, President Bush, uh, the, the, the intelligence system set up under Donald Rumsfeld, the Pentagon, you don't think they had any role in skewing the intelligence no, to I, a foregone conclusion? No, you I, think it was an intelligence committee, no. a intelligence community error and not a politicized decision? Yeah, really? I, yes, yeah. I, I know some of these men better than I know others, uh, but I don't think any one of these men 
would have contrived in their own mind a scenario without, in their own mind and heart, substantive belief based on information they received that the threat was real. There's no way that anybody in that group I mean, I just, they would commit uh, our, our blood and our treasure to a cause if they didn't think it was necessary to commit our blood and treasure to a cause to keep America safe. The, the, the intelligence may have proven to be false, uh, but there is no doubt in my mind that they were motivated to keep America safe. In retrospect, we can say that the intelligence was faulty. Actually, we discovered a couple times that when we raised the threat level a couple years later, there's one instance where we turned out to be faulty, but sometimes you don't have the luxury of waiting. And in this instance, if you thought they had weapons of mass effect, the United Nations had, had sanctioned them a, so many times and nothing ever happened and somebody had to make a move and, the, and I, I, I find it rather difficult to think that anybody in this country would believe that people in, in charge of their government, Republicans or Democrats or liberals or conservatives, would commit our blood and our treasure to a cause if they didn't truly believe in their heart and their mind that it wasn't to protect America. I just reject I that notion. That is an, I think that is an eloquent argument and I have to tell you, I think you, you making, well, I think you making that argument right now is why Republicans after the Bush and Cheney administration are not going to get back the country's trust on national security. To look back at that decision and say we got it wrong but it was in good faith and not acknowledge the foregone conclusion that we were going to invade Iraq that pervaded every decision that was made about intelligence. The pro looking back at that decision making process, it sounds like you're making the argument you would have made the same decision again. Americans need to believe that our, our, our government would not make that wrong a decision that would not make such a foregone take such a foregone conclusion to such an such an important issue that the counter the, the intelligence that proved the opposite point was all discounted that the the intelligence was combed through for any bit that would support the foregone conclusion of the policymakers the system was broken and if you don't see that the system was broken and you think it was just that the intel was wrong i think that you're one of the most trusted voices on national security for the Republican Party, and I think that's the elephant in the room. I don't think you guys get back your credibility on national security until you realize that was a wrong decision made by policymakers. It wasn't the spies' fault. Well, I, I think you're suggesting that it was only it was driven by, uh, quite obviously, the people who made the decision knew more about the threat than you and I do. And again, I think it's a it, it's a pretty radical conclusion to suggest that men and women trusted with the safety of this country would predicate a decision upon any other uh, basis other than to keep America safe. Later on, it may have proven that some of the information was inaccurate, but there were plenty of reasons to go into Iraq at the time. The foremost were the weapons of mass destruction. That obviously proven to be faulty uh, but the fact of the matter is at that time given what they knew and they knew more than you and I did it seemed to be the right thing to do and the decision was made in, the, in what they considered to be the best interests of our country we've been litigating it now for about five or six years I guess we're going to continue to litigate it and the historians and the, the final history hasn't been written because if Iraq if some form of, of self-government some form of democracy ultimately is achieved in Iraq. And it's not going to look exactly like ours, but you know, the, the Muslim world does admire freedom of speech. The Muslim world does admire democracy. As difficult as it over there, uh, the notion that we went in improperly will be uh, obviously reversed. And the, the history is yet to be written. Democracy reversed? in Iraq, well, no, democracy in Iraq will make a huge difference, not just for the men and women and the people and the families in Iraq, but for the entire region for a lot of reasons. You can go back in time and sell the American people on the idea. Uh, 
the 4,000 Americans ought to live their lives, and we ought to lose those trillions of dollars for democracy in Iraq. You have a uh, wilder imagination uh, than I do. We were sold that war because of 9-11. We were sold that war because of the threat of weapons of mass destruction from this guy who didn't have them, and our government should have known it. And frankly, a lot of people believe that our government did know it and that it was a cynical decision. And maybe everybody wasn't in on it, and maybe that is a radical thing to conclude. No, I, but I think I don't that's, share that point of view. You do. I know. I, I, I'm I, not going to convince you, and you're not going to convince me, but I really appreciate the civil way we've had the discussion. Frankly, I think we would advance our interests as a country a lot further and a lot faster if we could have the discussions yeah. such as this. And Governor I Ridge, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for uh, fighting my interpretation of the book uh, with such a plan. Thanks for coming in. Thank you in. very much. Good Thanks to see you. Pleasure. My tea's gone cold, I'm wondering why I got out of bed at all. The morning rain clouds up my window, and I can't see at all. And even if I could, it'll all be great. But your picture on my wall, it reminds me that it's not so bad, it's not so bad. book by former Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge, The Test of Our Times, America, blah, 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 siege, blah, 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 safe. Mr. Ridge describes an incident in which he wonders whether politics led then-cabinet members Don Rumsfeld and John Ashcroft to try to influence Mr. Ridge. And now, in our third story in the countdown, in response to that claim, Rumsfeld and Ashcroft have tried to influence Mr. Ridge. This time, anyway, it seems to be working and working well. Ridge's new book claims Rumsfeld and Ashcroft wanted to raise the threat level right before the 04 election, and that he, Ridge, wondered whether politics might be at work. Almost instantly, a former spokesman for Ashcroft told the New York Times, now would be a good time for Mr. Ridge to use his emergency duct tape. A terrorism joke and misdirected, it was White House pet David Paulson who sold the duct tape crap. Stay classy, Ashcroft. And from a spokesman for Rumsfeld, this theory, the storyline advanced by Ridge's publisher seemingly to sell copies of the book, is nonsense. Sense. Last night on the Rachel Maddow show, Mr. Ridge took the hint. Yes, he wondered then whether politics played a role. He knows now it didn't. And pay no attention to his own book jacket or what he wrote. I am musing in the book. Is there something else here? What am I missing? I don't, I don't get it. Is it politics? Is it security? What's, what's driving this discussion? Let, but at the end of the day, what I say to you, Rachel, is the process worked. Politics wasn't involved. I mean, the reason that this is this keeps coming up is, I mean, I'm just going to read to you directly from the flyleaf of your oh, book. Oh, I know that. He recounts episodes words. such as the pressure that the DHS received to raise the security alert on the eve of the 04 yeah, presidential yeah, election. Yeah. That's wrong. Yeah. It's, Those aren't my words. Okay. Read, read the book. Mr. Ridge, it would appear, not sufficiently outraged by his publisher's poetic license to ask them to change their website, which tonight still reads, Ridge effectively thwarted a plan to raise the national security alert just before the 2004 election. Joining us now, a man who has, on a couple of occasions, seen politics infect national governance, Nixon White House counsel John Dean, author of Worse Than Watergate and the recently reissued classic Blind Ambition. Yeah, thanks, as always, for your time tonight, sir. 
Thank you, Keith. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, is it not impossible for Mr. Ridge to know whether politics influenced the inner thinking of Rumsfeld and Ashcroft, and therefore not possible for Mr. Ridge to know that it did not? It, it, it is not possible in any way I know of that he could uh, channel both these people and get their thinking. Uh, it is quite clear when you listen to him on Rachel last night, he's saying, read my book, read my book. You read his book and he's saying exactly the opposite of what he's saying now. Uh, so he's clearly backpedaling. Is there any reason to suggest that that, that backpedaling owes to, you know, political pressure or something like that? I would suspect the fact that Rumsfeld and Ashcroft came out and hit him pretty hard uh, has affected his thinking on this whole matter. Uh, he doesn't seem to be as clear on what he wrote now that uh, they've spoken out on, on the issue. And also, Keith, he did indeed imply a rather serious criminal charge if this conduct indeed had under, been undertaken. So uh, I think there's a lot of reasons he probably has backed off and uh, political pressure from the Bush clan probably is part of the reason. Do we infer that the prospect that this was uh, a description of, of possible uh, criminal acts uh, might not have been known to Mr. Ridge before the book was written, or would he have been aware at some point, would somebody have said, even just somebody vetting the manuscript, have said, hey, you know what, I, I know a lawyer somewhere, and he says this might be, uh, this might be a crime you're describing. Well, I, you know, he's a former U.S. attorney from, uh, from Pennsylvania. Uh, theoretically, he would know about Title 18-371, which is the conspiracy to defraud the government by abusing or misusing its agencies for, in this instance, political purposes would fit perfectly under that description. It's what happened to a lot of people in Watergate. It's what happened in Iran-Contra. And it's, it's, it's difficult for me not to believe he didn't know about it. And I think this is one of those, oops, maybe I I shouldn't have said that, uh, and so he's recalibrating now and backing down from it from where he actually presently is stating it in his mm -hmm. book. But he has now managed to paraphrase the famous Charles Barkley allegation Charles made that he had been misquoted in his own autobiography. You have written your share of books. Did you get to sign off on jacket copy, uh, how the book was going to be publicized, what points were going to be emphasized in attempts to gain interviews or um, uh, reviews or attention of other kinds? Keith, fly copy, book jackets, the publicity that's on the site, that's all based on material in the book. So it was clear they had the impression that he indeed he had been pressured and that he had dealt with the pressure accordingly. That's why they use these as selling points. I've, all the books I've done, the editors who write these have always sent me the copy in advance for my approval. It's difficult for mm -hmm. me to believe that Ridge was not sent this copy and did not approve it before it went on the jacket. So. Uh, I'm kind of baffled by him backing off of it, uh, other than the fact he's being pressured to back off of it. Well, so that leads to the final question here, which is how in the world does that, this whole process not uh, pass the laugh test, let alone the sniff test? It doesn't pass easily. Uh, in fact, I think what he's done is undercut his book. I actually was rather interested in the book when I heard at first that he was going to come clean and say, yes, I, we, there was pressure and give some examples of it. But when I got to the book and, 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 and his uh, actual statements, there's now a big gap. John Dean, columnist for FindLaw.com, author of Broken Government and actual real books that he stands behind. All right, thanks as always, John.
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the buried lead department reports in this week. Homeland Secretary Tom Ridge, who went on a I Really Didn't Mean It tour this week as his book came out, because uh, when excerpts first surfaced a couple weeks ago, they seemed to indicate, that is to say, if you read the words, that he was suggesting that at a certain meeting just before the 2004 election, he got the feeling that uh, maybe Rumsfeld, maybe Cheney had um, political reasons for wanting the threat level raised. And he, as I say, went on a tour this week to say, that's not what I was saying. I, I think, well, why would you, you think that I... Uh, but buried way down in one of the stories about that was this. And if this isn't shouldn't be in the front of a news story, then uh, I'm clean, cheap, safe, and too clean to meet her. Former Secretary uh, of Homeland Security Tom Ridge is dumbfounded that the U.S. government still has no way to track foreign visitors who don't leave the country when their visas expire. Noting, of course, that two of the 9-11 hijackers were in the country on expired visas. developments of the Obama era thus far has been the extent to which the voice of national security coming from the Republican Party has been that of former Vice President Dick Cheney, a man who rarely spoke publicly while he was in office, but who has been the unshushable voice of the right on all things national security ever since. The reason it's difficult for the Republican Party to have Dick Cheney as their voice on national security is that he's not only potentially indictable for his role in the Bush administration's decisions to okay torture, it's also that the planet from which Mr. Cheney's voice emanates appears to be a relatively fact-free one. He has been asserting in the, in the face of bald facts to the contrary, that torture has been proven to work, that Saddam Hussein did have contacts with al-Qaeda, that Guantanamo has been a big ball of wind for the United States, an exercise in lawless imprisonment that Americans should just be proud of. And of course, he's been asserting that the war in Iraq was absolutely necessary. No regrets on that one. I don't look at it as we got it so wrong, Bob. I think we haven't. We fact, got a big part of it wrong. Well, there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. Correct. The original intelligence was wrong, no question about it. But there were parts of it that were right. It wasn't 100% wrong. So the intelligence was, was flawed. But you never have perfect intelligence in this business. That has been the firm line from Planet Cheney. Sure, what we said was true about Iraq. Uh, it was to, to start that war, it turned out to not be at all true. And if we didn't know it, we sure should have known it. But no regrets. I'm still glad that we did it. Well, last night on this show, 
I had what for me was a long-awaited chance to interview one of the men who played a role in selling that war to the U.S. public, Tom Ridge, an almost vice presidential candidate, a potential vice presidential or even presidential hopeful in the future, a man who, since his time as the nation's first Homeland Security Secretary, seemed to be one of the people who had a real shot at becoming a new voice for the Republican Party on national security, one that could supplant the divorced-from-reality extremism we have been hearing since he left office from former Vice President Cheney and, oddly, from his daughter. If the Republican Party is to move beyond the disgrace of the Bush years' foreign policy and the electoral disasters for that party that followed that disgrace, it has seemed to me that they would have to find a way to rejoin the debate here on planet Earth to find a new leading voice on national security that isn't Cheney, that, that no matter the strength of its disagreements with liberals and Democrats, it isn't a voice that's still trying to sell us the Iraq war. To my honest surprise, Governor Ridge on this program last night declined to try to be that voice, offered the opportunity to distance himself from the transmissions we've been getting from Planet Cheney. Mr. Ridge instead said, no regrets. We have received a ton of feedback um, on this interview that we did on the show last night. And, and it seems that this part of it, which we're going to show you here, um, where my shock and surprise at his answer may be evident, um, is the reason why. You were a crucial, authoritative part of making what turned out to be a false case to the American people about Iraq being a threat and us needing to attack them. February 2003, you said on ABC, I agree that as the president has said, the world community has said this is a rogue regime that has chemical biological weapons trying to develop nuclear weapons, has means of delivery. That's the reason this individual needs to be disarmed. The point is, the, the point in fact is that the world community has known for 12 years he's got chemical biological weapons, means of delivery, and that's precisely the reason of the United States and its partners are trying to disarm Saddam Hussein. He is a threat to his region. He's a threat to our allies. He is a threat to us. You made that case on national television sure. a month before we started invading. Do you regret that? No. You think it's true? At the time, I think it's true, and subsequent uh, uh, to that, uh, the president's uh, leadership and the things we've done have kept America safe. Do you think that Saddam Hussein was a threat to us at the time that we invaded? Based on not only the intelligence we had, but the intelligence we got from the, that was shared, uh, I believe, by, it's been known by the Brits and by the French, the that he had used weapons of mass destruction, uh, that he was, uh, again, several intelligence agencies thought he still had them. You believed it at the time? Yeah. You don't still believe it, do you? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, the intelligence communities of several countries who had assessed his, uh, who claimed that he had weapons of mass destruction, uh, we haven't found them. So, again... You think uh, that there's, they might still be there and we just haven't I, found them? I doubt it. I think we've covered that country, uh, but there are other reasons to go in. I think you making that argument right now is why Republicans, after the Bush and Cheney administration, are not going to get back the country's trust on national security. The system was broken, and if you don't see that the system was broken and you think it was just that the intel was wrong, I think that you're one of the most trusted voices on national security for the Republican Party, and I think that's the elephant in the room. I don't think you guys get back your credibility on national security until you realize that was a wrong decision made by policymakers. It wasn't the spy's fault. 
Well, I, I think your suggestion that it was only it was driven by uh, quite obviously the people who made the decision knew more about the threat than you and I do. And again, I think it's a it, it's a pretty radical conclusion to suggest that men and women trusted with the safety of this country would predicate a decision upon any other uh, basis other than to keep America safe. We've been litigating it now for about five or six years. I guess we're going to continue to litigate it. And historians, and the, the final history hasn't been written because if Iraq, if some form of, of self-government, some form of democracy ultimately is achieved in Iraq, and it's not going to look exactly like ours, but you know, the, the Muslim world does admire freedom of speech. The Muslim world does admire democracy. As difficult as it is over there, uh, the notion that we went in improperly will be obviously reversed, and the, the history is yet to be written. Democracy Reversed? in Iraq, well, no, democracy in Iraq will make a huge difference, not just for the men and women and the people and the families in Iraq, but for the entire region for a lot of reasons. You can go back in time and sell the American people on the idea that 4,000 Americans ought to live their lives and we ought to lose those trillions of dollars for democracy in Iraq. You have a uh, wilder imagination uh, than I do. We were sold that war because of 9-11. We were sold that war because of the threat of weapons of mass destruction from this guy who didn't have them and our government should have known it. And frankly, a lot of people believe that our government did know it and that it was a cynical decision. And maybe everybody wasn't in on it and maybe that is a radical thing to conclude. Well, I, but I, think I don't that's, share that point of view. You do. I know. I, I the, the point that I was ineloquently trying to make at the close of that interview was that th this is important information to know about Tom Ridge, but I think, and I wanted to expand on it tonight in order to say this, I think it's even more important information to know about the Republican Party in general and about whether or not we are going to get back to a point in this country where both sides, both the left and the right, have something useful, something that relates to the facts to bring to the most important decisions that a country like ours has to make. War and peace, foreign policy, national security, the way we behave in the world, the way we ensure our own survival as a nation. If we look back at the rationale for the Iraq war now, six years on, and we say, well, none of those reasons for the war turned out to be true, but what does that matter? If there isn't any regret for having started that war under false pretenses, if the thing that Republicans think we're going to be litigating forever is whether or not the people who sent us to war based on false information owe the country any sort of apology, whether those people should at least admit to getting it wrong, then the Republican Party, I think, is still broadcasting from Planet Cheney. The foreign policy disaster that was the Bush-Cheney years may have resulted in electoral disaster for the Republican Party, but it's not yet resulted in a Republican change of heart or change of mind. On the one side of the aisle, for example, there's this serious debate underway about counterinsurgency and the utility of trying to build a state in Afghanistan using foreign troops. On the other side, they're still pounding the table about Saddam's fake WMD. It's two different worlds. We're not participating in a debate here. If you are a fan of a one-party state, congratulations. That's what America has got right now on foreign policy and national security. If it's not going to be Tom Ridge, I don't know who it's likely to be, who brings the Republican Party back to earth, back to serious, legitimate debates over facts that everyone agrees on about what our country needs to do, about war and peace, about how to recover from the governmental disaster that started the Iraq war over a threat that was not there. If you like one-party states, congratulations. If, on the other hand, you like a good debate, you think that two parties honestly and respectfully fighting it out makes us stronger, I'm sorry, but we're not there yet.
Thanks for listening, everybody. So uh, f- just first of all, I want to do a quick shout out for PeaceButtons.info. You know, uh, little black buttons with little white peace symbol on them. Great to have. You're going to go out and uh, rally against the establishment, that sort of thing. Well, Carl, the proprietor over at PeaceButtons.info, is a listener and has been for a long time. And he wanted to help promote this show a little bit, and I wanted to help promote his website. So there you go, PeaceButtons.info. They have, of course, Peace Buttons and lots of other uh, peace-related merchandise, which you should definitely check out. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for their weekly Peace History newsletter. He really does a great job putting together... Uh, this this great informative newsletter all about kind of the history of the peace movement in all of its forms. So it comes out as kind of a This Week in Peace compendium. Now, speaking of peaceful, I just wanted to talk for a minute about what I did last week because I like to do this sort of thing um, every once in a while when I feel like I've done something interesting. So the, the first three days of last week were spent at a staff retreat, actually. You know, I have a real job besides the podcast and so the whole staff got together and we drove out to the hills of West Virginia this is the second year in a row that I've gotten to do this and we go out to this yoga retreat center there's no cell phone access no internet and we we get together and you know it's a working trip you know we're planning for the work uh, ahead in the next year but it's also relaxation and staff bonding and having fun and that sort of thing and so the, the one big thing that's really worth mentioning is, of course, out in the hills, uh, in the middle of nowhere, there's no light pollution. So at nighttime, you can see all the stars. So beyond being able to just look up and see them, I actually did you know a couple of extra things. First of all, we had a telescope that we were able to set up, and a coworker of mine was actually able to find Jupiter. And so we were able to get Jupiter in focus on a telescope and see the rings in its gaseous form. And, you know, some, a couple of us even thought we could pinpoint the, the big red spot on the planet. Uh, I wasn't so sure personally. I mean, it could have been some other big red spot. But anyways, I definitely saw the planet and we even saw some you know little dots around it that we were positive were its moons so that was wonderful on its own and then I and just one other guy took the opportunity to go up and actually sleep on the roof of this building we were staying at there's you know just a, a little deck right on the very top of the house and it was warm and perfectly clear for the first couple of nights and so the, the first night I went to bed around 11 o'clock, but didn't fall asleep until well past one. And I just laid and stared straight up at the stars. And as the hours went by, I, I was actually able to watch the Milky Way galaxy. It, you know, it was that clear. We could see you know, the, that big white band of just a traffic jam of stars. And so I actually watched that band of stars, due to the rotation of the Earth, move in the sky across my field of vision from left to right. So of course that was just an amazing thing to to behold, and uh, not something I get to do often at all. So I thought that was worth sharing. 
So now this week it has been full blast back to work on the podcast. And I, I, I know you guys realize how much work this, this show takes, but I actually did the math on it today. And I just wanted to share with you because w- when I say that it's mathematically impossible for me to be doing this show at the pace I'm doing it without the support of the members, I just wanted to give you an idea of what that really meant. So these past two days, Monday and Tuesday of this week, I put in about 12 hours each day because, you know, if you thought about it, you you know what goes into the show. It's, you know, listening to all the sources, clipping out all the pieces that will go into the shows, compiling it all together, editing the shows together, and then there's running the website and responding to emails and, you know, a whole other variety of things. And so you put all that together and... And I realized today, you know, for the first time, I, re- I actually looked at the numbers and I realized I'm doing about 30 to 35 hours a week to produce two one hour long episodes of the show. And I was pretty astonished by that. Now, I mean, I know I didn't used to put in that much time. There's a lot more stuff going on behind the scenes now. I'm constantly trying to make things better. I'm trying to, you know, build new whatever, work on new projects for the future, and so on and so on, uh, writing the email newsletters or what, whatever happens to come up on a given day. Um, you know, so I'm putting in more work now than I used to when it was just a hobby, but time-wise, this really has become a part-time job. I mean, there's no way around it. If you're spending 30 to 35 hours a week on something, that's a huge part of your life. It's, you know, you better hope that that's a part-time job, otherwise... You might be in some trouble. So anyways, I just wanted to bring that up as today's segue towards thanking members. Because, you know, obviously, you know, I say it all the time. I couldn't do this without you. Today, I actually wanted to explain what that meant. I could not put in the time required by the show without the support of the members. So anyone out there listening, if you like the show and you want to help support it and support me and, and the work I, I have to do to get it out every every week you know twice a week it doesn't take much people can sign up for as little as uh well it used to be as little as five dollars a month now we have a yearly plan you can sign up for as little as four dollars and 58 cents a month where in the world are you going to get eight hours of entertainment every month for four and a half bucks i mean it's just not going to happen so today I wanted to thank uh, specifically Harold R. and Howard Y., who signed up on August 28th and September 15th, respectively. I wanted to pull out these two uh, in particular because they both signed up for more than the minimum. Both signed up to donate $10 a month to help support the show. And really, I just can't thank you guys enough. Um, you know, Harold and Howard, thank you. All the other members, thank you. Everyone who listens, just the fact that you guys are out there listening is is what keeps me going. And it, for those of you who are able to contribute to actually help uh, pay my bills as I'm spending all my time working on this show, I just can't thank you guys enough. It, it's really, I, I'm really feeling like this is the beginning of a dream come true for me. That if I can get enough support from enough people that I can just do this for a living... Uh, I can't imagine anything better 
and I would be overjoyed and would just continually work to make this show as good as it possibly can be because this show is absolutely my pride and joy. So the fact that other people appreciate it enough to donate money is the absolute best I could have hoped for. So that is it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook by signing up for our email newsletter. You can support the show by leaving reviews in iTunes, voting every month at Podcast Alley. We could use about 50 more votes to get us to 200 Podcast Alley, really secure our slot there. Uh, We haven't been doing as well as I would like, so if you could head over to Podcast Alley and vote, that would be awesome. The show is available on your smartphone by going to stitcher.com and finding the show there. You can visit our show notes on the blog to find links to all the sources we used and links to buy all the music used in this episode. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to our members from bestoftheleft.com. Pitch burning on a shining sheet